Welcome to the New City Church Podcast. New City is a church in Bath, Maine that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, Pastor Joel Littlefield is preaching through Daniel chapter 7, and the sermon title is Tribulation for the Saints. We hope you are blessed by the message today. All right. Well, it's good to see everybody. Good to be here. Good to be back. Um, my son and I were away in Ohio last week and last weekend and just visiting a partner church and it was, I mean, I love, I love traveling from time to time and preaching at other, at churches that have poured into us, but I'm, I really did miss being here. And, um, but, uh, what an awesome series we've been in, right? I hope you guys have been blessed and encouraged and even challenged a little bit as we've been walking through Daniel 7. And uh, really unearthing some topics that, uh, you know, they can, be, they can be challenging at times. But I, I pray that uh, those as well as today um, is ultimately just a huge encouragement for everybody. And with that, the title of today's message is Tribulation for the Saints. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even realize. Yeah, it's going to work out okay. It'll be good. <laughs> Let me pray, and then we're going to just, so we don't really have a, a primary text where we're, we're going to read, but we're going to be right there in Daniel 7 again, so let me pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Father, thank you for being uh, the kind of God and Father that you are, for the faithfulness that you show us every day in the midst of trial and circumstances that are daunting and very difficult. Thank you, God, that you have pulled us through so many seasons, as individuals, as families, marriages, uh, as a church. And God, you are a wonderful, wonderful God. We give you this time and we ask that your word would be the center of our focus and our attention, God, that we would not look to the left or to the right, but that we would be fixed upon hearing from you today. Father, we need to hear from you. Holy Spirit, we need you to teach us and make things clear in your word. God, I pray that you would sanctify us, that you would remind us of the goodness of our Savior in the midst of difficult times. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for Jesus and his blood shed for us. Thank you for rising from the dead. Lord Jesus, and for being victorious over my sin and the death that I deserved. Thank you for rising from the dead and ascending to the Father where you are King of all kings and you are Lord of lords and you are interceding for us even right now. And you're praying for us. I pray for every broken and hurting heart. God, be glorified. Magnify your name in this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. For those of you who are new and you don't know me, just so you know my name, my name is Joel. I'm one of the elders here. I get to be the lead pastor here, and it's just an incredible uh, thing that we've, that we've seen God do at New City. So if you are new, again, I just want to say welcome, and you're, you're coming into a season, I think, of just a great joy and, and some growth. And, and one of the things that we would attribute that to is the fact that we believe that God's Word is the final authority over our lives. Um, we will never hear preach to coddle uh, culture. Um, but just simply say that culture needs to conform to the Word of God and that we need to conform as people to the Word of God. And so we're, we go through books of the Bible and we've been going through Daniel and Daniel chapter 7 is where we are. And so if you guys just go, if you haven't turned there yet, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 7. And then uh, just as a bit of a, a recap and just kind of how we got to where we are, a few months back, John and Isaac and I, um, myself and two of the other elders, we got together to begin planning this series, and we determined three things as the purpose for this series, and the reason ultimately why it's worth our time to dive deeper, because maybe that's come up, like why? What, I mean, we could be talking about things that are a little more relevant to our lives than these prophetic things, but, but it is worth it, and here's what we came up with. Well, number one, if God reveals it, or if God's Word teaches it, then it's worth knowing and it's worth investigating. If it's taught in the Word of God, it's not a waste of time. Okay, and so it may be, maybe you've not delved deep into uh, the book of Daniel before, but this is an opportunity to do so, and I want to encourage you to see that as worth, worth our time, and I believe it has been. 
Number two, a series like this could help to provide a clearer understanding of God's overarching plan for redemption, like the, the overarching view of what God is doing in our world and what he's been doing since the world began and before that in all eternity, which is a, a great perspective to try to have. What is God's overarching plan? And thirdly, and most importantly, a, a series like this would allow us to see the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ more clearly. And I pray that that has been the case, that as we've looked at Daniel and these several of these points that have come up in Daniel 7, that you have been encouraged in the gospel. So we've covered in part one, the kingdom of God, what's it like? Part two, we looked at the various millennial kingdom views. That was a great study. Last week with, uh, with John, we looked at the doctrine of the Antichrist. So if you missed that and you're curious, what does the scripture say about Antichrist and, and these things? We'll go back. It's on our YouTube page as well as on our Facebook page. So that's something you should do. And then today, which is part four, we're going to spend our time thinking about tribulation and then also the Great Tribulation. Who's heard of the Tribulation before? Or the Great Tribulation? It's in your mind somewhere? You've heard of it? You've talked about it? Okay. Good. So look at Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. It says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, his clothing as white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out, of, out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Before we really begin to think about tribulation, I thought it would be good to just take a look at the throne. And who is judge? And who is the one who ultimately is the judge of the universe? And this text is no doubt referring to the judge of the universe, the one from whom fire and justice flows righteously upon the actions of sin and rebellion. From God's throne, this place that we just are reading about, we see several clues that tell us this is God. One, the Ancient of Days took his seat. That is no other than God the Father, the Ancient of Days. His pure white clothing, his hair is pure wool, his throne, fiery flames. This is speaking of a pure and righteous judge. From his throne comes streams of fire, and before him thousands and thousands serve him. And the court is mentioned. He sat at court, or court sat in judgment, and books were open. When books are open, we're talking in Scripture about judgment. We're talking about judgment. In the text, we notice a courtroom, but it's different. So if in your mind you think courtroom, earthly, earthly judges, we have to make a distinction. This courtroom is different from any on earth because the one who sits in this judge's chair that we're reading about is unlike every earthly judge. He's completely pure. The snow-white clothing, the hair is pure wool. These are indications that this judge is perfect. Pure and perfect. And the books that he held were unlike any other books that would be opened in a judge's courtroom because these books are not slanted or marred with sinful opinions and human biases ever. They can't be. God is perfect and he judges perfectly. And those books that he opened are complete and without error. It's important to note. This is the Ancient of Days. This is God Almighty, the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the judge. We notice in Daniel's vision of the beast, and we're going to just kind of bounce around again in Daniel 7, but keep this in mind. He's the ancient of days. He's the judge. The books are opened. In Daniel's vision, at the beginning of this chapter, we, we see the beasts that each of the kingdoms leading up to the coming of the Messiah get worse and worse. If you remember in our series, we've, we, we identified these beasts, and they begin with a pretty serious empire, but then the previous one is always destroyed by the next one until we get to that final one in which the kingdom comes. Each one devouring the last until that final kingdom with the ten rulers that come up here in Daniel 7 and that one very curious little horn that is the most evil in all comparison. And then in Daniel 7.11, as well as in Daniel 7.21, we see his judgment. So let's look at that. 
Again, thinking of the judge of the universe. Daniel 7:11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. Who, who does that? The judge, the ancient of days, the God of heaven and earth. Then in verse 21 of chapter 7, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Now tune into the good news here. This is, there's some good news here. Even that kind of evil that is evident in that type of an empire that we've already identified was the worst of all of them. It was absolutely beyond what words can could, could describe ultimately the, the bloodshed and the devouring that was happening from that empire. But because of the sovereign and righteous judge, that kind of evil cannot prevail forever. Notice the wording. He made war with the saints... And prevailed over them until. That is a definitive statement. There is a definitive end to the work of the beast. I want you to hear this. There is a definitive end to the work of that beast that Daniel mentions. And it is God who determines that end. There is a definitive end to all works of evil. This is good news for us in the world we live in. And it is God who determines that end. That evil... Evil empires, evil people, evil rulers, Satan himself, the beast, any antichrist only exists for as long as God says and until God says. One thing that is clear and a great encouragement for Christians is that God will have the final word. God will have the final word, brothers and sisters. God is the judge of all. And that's a powerful truth that comforts the righteous, but also one that should strike fear in the rebellious. It's one that comforts the righteous. So the righteous in this room, what I mean is those who have faith in Christ, who are resting in Christ and the righteousness that he gives. The, the fact that God is judge of the universe gives you great comfort, not great fear. There is a sense of fear and awe and respect because of who he is, but you don't shudder in fear that you will receive judgment from God because Christ has received it on your behalf. But to be outside of the, of the kingdom and to be unrighteous and unrebellious, there should be great, great fear of the God of the universe, the judge of all mankind. In Daniel's vision... The court convenes and books are opened. And he's speaking of a specific moment there in Daniel in that prophecy. He's speaking of a specific moment that we'll consider later when those books are open. But in the end, in the end of all things, in Revelation 20, and if you guys, maybe in Daniel you've thought, well, maybe I should study Revelation too. Maybe you've been reading in Revelation or, or studying there as well. But in Daniel, excuse me, in Revelation 20... It speaks on the dead being raised at the resurrection and the final books are opened. There's another place and other places in Scripture where books are opened. And that's one very crucial place there in Revelation 20 where books are opened and God will pronounce a final judgment. There will be one final judgment. And every human who has ever lived will enter into their final state, their eternal state. Who's heard of their eternal state before? The eternal state. The eternal state, it is, the, it, is, it is when it's all been determined and it's done and there's no other place for you to go. No decisions to be made. It's done. It is final and you're there for eternity. Your final state. And you know, according to Scripture, there's only two places that that could be. And that would either be eternally with the Lord in His presence in the joy of our Savior or eternally damned and banished from the presence of God. Those are the two eternal states. Those who are banished forever are the ones who earned their own wage. They earned their own wage, that wage being death. Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. The penalty for loving sin and loving self over God is death. You will die. You will be separated from God. But those who enter the joy of the Lord forever are those who receive the free gift of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as the only payment for their sin. These will stand before the Father with no wages earned. 
No wages earned at all. No consequence due for their penalty. No judgment for sin because that person trusted in the blood of Jesus for their full payment. He paid the wage. Isn't that incredible news? Again and again and again, it's incredible news. Jesus either pays the wage or you pay the wage. Jesus made a payment and it was paid in full. Church, God is the judge and he does judge. He has judged and he will judge again. But thanks be to God that our Lord Jesus suffered under the judgment of God on my behalf. And on the behalf of many, many in this room. And you can rejoice that God judged his son, his perfect son, so that you wouldn't have to be judged. But we know the reality is many will be judged. There will be a judgment. Many will fall. Many will be damned into eternity. The text in Daniel does cause us to think a little more, though. I want to pause and address a little bit of curiosity from the text. If you notice, glance down, one very popular view around this, this phrase about time. If you notice where it said time, times, and half a time, that this beast, this Antichrist, will wear out the saints. Look at Daniel 7, 25. There you'll see it. One very popular view held is that this phrase has to be talking about what is called the Great Tribulation. Because similar time periods are mentioned later in Daniel and again in Revelation, this phrasing of time, times, and half a time. I mean, you, you've, I'm sure if you're a Bible student, if you've read, read Scripture for a while, you've seen this and you've seen viewpoints and have developed a viewpoint potentially of what this is. I'm going to, again, like we've mentioned at the beginning of this series, I'm going to share my, what my viewpoint is. You're going to maybe hear what yours is, and you may not. Please don't be offended. Don't leave. Um, but I'm going to share from the best of my ability what, what I believe this is saying. But it would be that the word for time would be one year. This is the popular view, that, that times would mean two years, and that a half a time would mean half a year. So what we have is a three-and-a-half-year period, which the, word, the, the, the period three-and-a-half is not... Uh, it's mentioned a few times in Scripture. It's a significant time frame, a three-and-a-half-year period. Now, I'm not fully opposed to this meaning three-and-a-half years, but it's important to know that not all biblical scholars, not all people see it that way. There are other views. And it's not the only view by any means. Some scholars have concluded that Daniel is referring to a period of time followed by a longer period of time and then finally by a time that is simply cut short. A time that is cut off. So a time and time and a half a time. Now when you look at that phrase, half a time, that's ultimately what it's meaning. Those words don't, in the original language, which would be Aramaic here, don't actually mean three and a half years, right? We're, we're taking other places that three and a half years is mentioned and saying, well, because this is biblical prophecy, there's a really good chance this could be talking about three and a half years. And again, that's not a, it's not a bad view. It makes sense why that would be seen. But the, the wording, the Aramaic words, simply there for half a time just mean a divided time. It doesn't mean half a year. It just means cut short. Something's been divided. The time that Daniel refers to is certainly one of extreme tribulation. Let, let's look at what it says here. We'll read verse, um, let's start in verse 23. Thus he said, as... For the four beasts, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it into pieces. That's, that's horrific language. That's, that's pretty fierce. As for the ten horns out of the kingdom, ten kings will arise and another shall arise from after or after, arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. Verse 25, he shall speak words against the Most High. So he's a blasphemer. He's a speaker. He has great words to say. And shall wear out the saints, the saints of the Most High. That's, that's saints. That's God's people. He will wear them out. And shall think to change times and law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So the saints, is what he's saying, will be given into the hands of this little horn, this ruler, that is a blasphemer, and, that, and I won't expound deeply on that. John covered that great last week. But this is the, 
the outcome of his rule in this time period. What Daniel is referring to is the saints will be worn out. The mouth is speaking great words. He's persecuting the saints and seeking to change important times and laws. Now, considering this in the context of the little horn, which I believe to be representing uh, Rome, but not only Rome, more specifically the Roman Caesars, including Caesar Nero, it would make sense that it's simply referring to a shortened time and that God himself is the one who shortens it. The saints will be worn out, will be persecuted by the little horn until God determines the end. Scripture tells us he will take away his dominion. Look at verse 26. The court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. This is still talking about the little horn. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven. So, he takes away the dominion of that Antichrist and then gives an increase to the influence of the kingdom and to the church. That's what's being said here. Now, with other parts of Daniel 7's discussion, there are varying views, as I've already mentioned. But the immediate context is what we need to look to first. Would you agree? The immediate context. Who was Daniel writing to? What was the purpose of Daniel's writing? The immediate context demands that we consider these activities as those surrounding first century Rome. If you remember, even as we've gotten into Daniel's study and we've begun to identify the various beasts and the rulers that have emerged, that's already been settled. That it was in that time that that great stone was cut from heaven and devoured or crushed the toes of that statue, which is a, a parallel prophecy to Daniel 7. So, with that being our understanding, when considering the statue of Daniel 2 and the beast of Daniel 7, that final beast is, is the Rome that was in power during Christ's first coming. That final beast is, in the, is coming from that Rome that was during Christ's first reign, first coming, excuse me. And I believe that gives us some consistency then not to immediately consider these as future events. Are you guys tracking with me? Everybody tracking with me? The tendency is for us to read scripture like this and, and, and various others and say, this must be for me, and this must be about me and for my future. And it's not to say there's no prophecy remaining to be fulfilled in the future, but again, the context demands that we look immediately at what the writer is saying and why he wrote it there first. Then if there's secondary fulfillments, that's fine. The doing away with this great oppressor's dominion and the increase of the kingdom would seem to be consistent with Daniel 2. So if you remember, the stone was cut from heaven in Daniel 2 without human hands. It crushes the empire, then grows on the earth until earthly dominion is given and, and until all earthly dominion serves and obeys him obeys that dominion. It's a process. The, the stone comes down, crushes, and there's a growing and a gradual increase of that kingdom. And what did we just read here in Daniel chapter 7 verse 26? But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Now, if you were a 6th century B.C. Jewish man or woman, you would read this and know what was coming. Daniel was writing in the 6th century B.C. You would have read these words at that time, shortly after Daniel penned these, and you would have been filled with hope and comfort and an understanding of Daniel's future and the Jewish people's future. The 600 years that were to remain before those, I mean, amazingly tumultuous times in the years prior to zero, and then the time that Rome came on the scene. Absolutely tumultuous. You would re read this and you would be aware that there is a God in heaven who is the judge and though he will allow times of trouble and tribulation for his people to endure, he will bring it to an end for the sake of his elect. 
that the scripture here for these Jewish people, 6th century B.C., would know that God is going to do something about the tribulation that is going to come upon them. Now, to give some comparison, and I hope, I hope this is a great encouragement or at least gets you to think and start going, I, I want to read more about this, we see a similar picture unfold in a, in a prophecy that Jesus made about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Now, again, this is one view, and you may hold a different view, but, I, but, but t- tune in and, just, and listen to what this, what this says. Matthew 24, if you guys turn over to Matthew 24 from Daniel and take a look at these scriptures with me. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 2. Jesus steps away from the the temple, walks out of the temple, and he looks back and he says this in verse 2. You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then verse 3, the disciples say, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now look down at Matthew 24, verse 9. We're going to read verse 9 to 22, and I would encourage you to read this whole chapter later on. But for time's sake, we're going to just read this, verse 9. Then, this is Jesus in his description and giving an understanding of what's going to happen during this time surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated for, by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand... Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or in the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now, I would also submit to you that this tribulation and judgment in Matthew 24 is quite possibly, I won't be dogmatic about it, but I do believe it's quite possibly speaking of the same event that Daniel 7 is predicting in the context of what we're seeing And yes, one popular view is to see Matthew 24 as entirely future. You don't need to raise your hands, but I would assume that there there are many that see, or some at least, that see Matthew 24 as an entirely future event. And I certainly have seen it that way before. I'm not as convinced. Did you catch the references in Matthew 24 to localized events? First of all, he names Jerusalem and Judea. He names local mountains that the Judeans are to flee to from Judea. He said to that generation, when you, speaking to that generation, when you see the abomination of desolation, and this was something based on all these clues and who he was speaking to and the localized events that he's speaking about, that I believe that he expected them to see this in their lifetime primarily and not ours. Now, the reason this is important is, first of all, because we need to try to read Scripture in context, don't we? I I can't tell you how many times I've read something and then somebody said, well, have you ever read it in context? And it didn't matter what they were trying to prove to me. The context made me feel like, why did I ever believe that when the context says this? And so, if anything, let this be a really good reminder for us as Bible people, students of the Scriptures, to just care so much about the context of the Bible. So that we don't become people who are guilty of making the Bible say something that it doesn't say, or trying to make it about us, right? It's it's something that needs to be said, but the Bible is not primarily about America. It's not primarily for Americans, 
We are not the privileged nation, according to Scripture. So it's important that we don't read the Bible just as Americans and think, well, this must be somehow for us. Daniel did not write it, first and foremost, for us. Would you agree? Now, can we learn from it? Can we grow from it? Are there future aspects? Yes. Are there double prophecies, things that had uh, present fulfillment and future? Absolutely, yes. But I think in this case here, I think Matthew 24 is saying some very specific things, and I'm, I'm seeing it line up with Daniel chapter 7. This is in line with even what the little horn, the little horn in Daniel. It says, He shall wear out the saints, and they shall be given into his hands, but only for a limited time, for time and times and half a time. Now, I, I, I am wanting to say this in a way where I don't really care about my opinion, and I don't want you to really care about my opinion either. It's not really about opinions. Right? We want to teach Scripture here, and we want to come to what God's conclusion is, as close as we possibly can. But why does the mention of a great tribulation today spark thoughts about the future when Matthew 24, that mentions the great tribulation, in this context is speaking to his generation and a generation that would see an abomination, an abomination of desolation and would see great tribulation and being handed over to authorities and great Great, great tribulation. Why is it that our first thought when we hear great tribulation, why is it future? I just want to submit that. If, if that's your thought, that's fine. But I want to just ask you why. Is it because of context of Scripture? Then good. Hold on to that. If that's your view and you see it in Scripture, that's great. But we do live in a world that primarily, again, takes these Scriptures and makes them mean things for us and for our context. Will there be a tribulation and a judgment from God in days ahead of us? Very possibly. I, I, again, I, I can't say absolutely no, and I can't say absolutely yes or how that will be. Will there be great tribulation? There's going to be hard times ahead, right? Horrifically hard times. We can even tell that by just the course of history, how things have gone for the church there may be tribulation and there may be judgment from God on the earth and ahead, in, uh, ahead of us, but it's not going to be because of Daniel 7 and Matthew 24. There's other scriptures that I want you to see that we can know that God does not always pull his people out of tribulation. He does not always remove people. And I understand, again, that is, the, that is a dominant popular viewpoint in our culture today that how could God allow us to go through a great tribulation. And so we will be removed out of here. And again, that is one viewpoint that is popularly held. But let's just listen to these scriptures and let's hear what the Word of God says and be encouraged in these things. One reason why I believe we will potentially have great tribulation ahead of us, maybe not the great tribulation, but great tribulation, is because of 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 4. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in, their, in your faith that no one be moved from these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept you we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. It's an, it's an interesting thing to hear the Apostle Paul speak of being destined for affliction, isn't it? As you know, we were destined for this. Romans eight thirty-five to 39. Again, Paul's writing in a first century context. Romans 8, 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, 
nor life, nor angel, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's speaking to a first century church in which there will be great tribulation, and there was, and for centuries ahead, this verse would also have provided great comfort. Would it not have? To provide comfort to the church that would go through tribulation and trial and bloodshed and slaughtering. That the Apostle Paul would write such a thing knowing that this would be the life of a believer. Look at 1 Peter 5.8. Again, first century writing. Be sober-minded. 1 Peter 5.8. I don't want to go too quick. You guys can turn there. It is on the screen. If you want to cheat, that's fine. We did put it there so you could cheat. So, 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The devil hasn't changed. He's doing the same thing today. We can expect tribulation because of that. Resist him, firming your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the whole world. And after you have suffered a little while... The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now it is true that Satan, through any means possible, will seek to wear out and wear down the church. He will do that. God will allow Seasons of tribulation. Some will come as direct judgment from him upon the ungodly. Other times will be a result of God sovereignly purifying the faith of his people through tribulation. I'm, I'm pretty convinced that this particular time that we're reading about of Daniel's vision of the wearing out of the saints that Daniel envisioned, what, what he envisioned came in the first century. I believe that is the first fulfillment. That is specifically what is, what is being spoken of in Daniel's time. That he was prophesying of a time that would come for his people and for the church that would come on the scene. A first century when Rome pressed hard on the saints and killed them for sport and fed them to lions and burned them in the streets. Tribulation that I could say that you and I have never lived through as Christians. But it also for certain typifies the life that we must all be ready to lead. We have to all be ready to lead a life that will go through tribulation. Not being so quick to look for the escape. If we're going to follow Jesus, this is for certain something we need to be ready for. Look at the words of Jesus himself. John 16, 33. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He says it. We will have tribulation. In the world you will have tribulation. Now, John the Apostle penned these words to a real church in first century, in the first century Asia Minor. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. The Apostle Paul, Apostle John penned these words to a real church in Asia Minor. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. It is absolutely certain, church, that we need to be ready for tribulation on a daily basis, whatever that might look like. The Apostle Paul and John and Jesus himself, they spoke words to ready us and to prepare us for tribulation. Scripture doesn't teach us that the tribulation of the saints is a sign that God doesn't love us. That might be the primary thing I want you to hear today. The Bible doesn't teach that when Christians suffer, whether it's 
because we are around people who are in the midst of a sinful world and being judged, and we are around that, so we experience God's judgment upon sin, because God certainly does bring about judgment in various ways prior to the final judgment. Or if he allows a specific trial or tribulation in your life that you must endure, it doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. We have been ingrained, it's been ingrained into us because of the prosperity gospel and because of American culture and because of just the comfort that we have that it must mean that God's doing something wrong or he's off the throne or he doesn't love us if we go through very hard trial and tribulation. But there is nowhere in scripture that you can find that. Be comforted in this, church. This is a great comfort to Bible people who look at the Scripture as a, as a child of God and you see the truth of what God is doing and what He actually has said. Scripture teaches us that tribulations and trials refine and strengthen true believers. That is a joy. That is something to hold on to. That trials and tribulations refine and strengthen true believers. Why is it important to say true believers? Because it also separates true from false. A true believer will go through trial refined and strengthened and with their eyes on Jesus and the glory of heaven and what's to come and the fakes and the false confessor, confessors will run for comfort. Not in God, not comfort in God, but comfort in themselves. Or believe a lie or believe something some false preacher has said. If your life is difficult, then you don't have enough faith. It's just not biblical. Something else to consider from Daniel 7 and, and also Matthew 24 is that God is the one who sees and brings relief to his elect. He's the one who brings relief to those who are under trial. God ultimately has the control of when that persecution or that trial or that tribulation comes to an end. We saw it there in, in his prophecy in Matthew. Unless those days were shortened. Oh, and for the sake of the elect, they were shortened. Isn't that beautiful? How God loves his elect. Elect is a, it's, it's synonymous with the word church. Okay, just think about this. God's people, his chosen bride, who he loves and who he died for. He loves his church. And he allows tribulation, but he also brings it to an end. He'll allow suffering, but he also brings that to an end. You know, I had the, it's an interesting privilege that you can pray for, and, and this person may actually be watching, um, I have a, I have a sister, half-sister in Arizona who reached out to me this week to help talk to her daughter about the shooting in Texas. To help give comfort and some reason and some, some sense of stability for a 12, 13-year-old girl who's going to public school and wondering what's going on. And so I've been thinking and praying through and I'm going to make up a, a video to send to them that has, a, has some description so that they can kind of think and chew on it. You guys can be praying for that. Um, but as I'm thinking about it, nobody gets away with anything in God's economy. Nobody does. There will be a final judgment. And those that we think get away with things today, they don't ultimately. There will be justice. God will prevail. He will bring an end to suffering in his timing, and it will be perfect. And we can trust him. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Just soak in that truth for a minute. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Not even worth comparing. He's, you see that? It's not even worth comparing. No comparison. The glory that, we will be that will be revealed to us compared to the sufferings of this life so far vastly different that it's not even worth comparing. 
This does not say that God doesn't care, so don't compare it. He's saying that he cares so much that he's prepared for you such a weight of glory for those who have trusted in Christ that you're going to look back on the sufferings of this life and it's going to be minuscule comparatively. There is a glory that will be revealed in the end at the coming of Christ and that final judgment of the wicked when Christ will be vindicated, the church will be vindicated, and those who trusted in the blood of Christ alone will be clothed in righteousness and we will see his face and we will enter into our eternal joy. And then in that place there is no amount of suffering or sadness that will not seem small compared to that glory. That's what you need to cling to. It's, it'll be a temptation to cling to what our culture is preaching, to cling to traditions of what some people say is coming. So what we cling to rather than Christ is we cling to an escape. I'm going to just say this. Brothers and sisters, if you are of the persuasion that, that we will be raptured, I hope that, I mean, how awesome would that be that we'd be raptured before a tribulation? But listen, your hope is not the rapture. No Bible ever has said that. The glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's our hope. Just so you know, the blessed hope that's preached in Thessalonians is not the rapture of the church before the tribulation. It's the appearing of Jesus that every eye can see. It's, the way, it's when he comes to crush the enemy and judge everyone finally where we will see him eternally forever and it'll all be done. Nowhere in Scripture, and I would just encourage you, just please, please just look at Scripture. I'm not saying change your viewpoint about the rapture. Just change your viewpoint about where your hope is. Remember, Christ is our hope. Christ is our hope. And he may, he may have you suffer a little while you're here. And I would rather you be a church that's ready. Ready to suffer with Christ. For the sake of his glory and for the spread of his kingdom. We can't look at a century where a church that suffered and a people of God that suffered didn't, didn't somehow spread a wildfire everywhere because of that suffering. Who are we to say that, that God doesn't love us if he allows us to suffer? Or if great tribulation comes upon us while we're here? So God does love us, and our proof of that is what, church? What's our proof that God loves us? I just hear whispering, so <laughs> I'm assuming you said the right things. The proof that God loves us is his son, his son Jesus Christ, given for us, crucified, risen, ascended. That's the proof. And if your faith is in him, you have all the proof that you need. You can suffer. You can go through times of joy. You, you may be blessed. We, we may, guys, we could be in a season ahead of us. We don't know. Right now it seems pretty horrible, doesn't it? But again, remember, <laughs> Americans like to complain. So remember that. The Bible wasn't written for Americans. It was written for God's people throughout the ages, every nation, tribe, and tongue, to hear the gospel and find hope in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Praise God. So let me pray. We'll, we'll share communion. We have the joy, again, as a church, to be able to remember the death of our Lord together and what it does, what it did, and how it secures for us eternal life. So let's pray together. Let's bow our hearts and thank the Lord for his word. Father, thank you so much for the hope that we have that you have attained for us through the suffering of your servant, Jesus Christ, your son. Thank you for being that payment, for being the propitiation, God, for, a, for sending your son the only, only sacrifice that could appease your righteous wrath. And our, our faith today, I pray, is in Christ alone.
for that hope and for that security and nothing else, no event, no future president, no election, no change of government would be our ultimate hope. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Thank you, thank you for your word today. Thank you for the hope and the comfort that I pray you've given to many believers as hearts are being reminded of what our true hope is. And even if we're suffering today, and even if, and, and, I'm, and I know that there are many and there are some, there are trying, trying days ahead. And in the midst of trying and difficult circumstances, tri- tribulations that are very real to, to many people right now, that's challenging their faith, it's causing them to be refined in the fire. God, may their hope be in you. May they find so much joy as they look to the eternal Son. And Lord, whatever is ahead for us, whether it's a thousand years of great joy or two thousand years of ups and downs, and God, just prepare us. Ready this church and every church that names the name of Jesus, every believer who is truly committed to Christ, God, may we may we live on mission for you and be like lights and salt in this community and in this world. God, fill us with your spirit. Empower us. Strengthen us. Comfort us. Draw us into your loving arms. Remind us of your love for us today. Thank you for the hope that we have. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. For more messages from New City Church, check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms. Or if you want to find our gathering times, location, or any other information about New City, check out our website at bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next week.